Well, welcome to another episode of the Scriptural Mormonism Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Pollan. In terms of announcements, next Saturday we will have Spencer Krause uh, come on to discuss these two most recent interpreter articles, uh, responding to Jonathan Neville, a proponent of the Heartland model. Uh, we'll be discussing his use of anti- and ex-Mormon sources, and he's belittling, if you will, of Latter-day Saint sources to um, approach the Heartland model and to critique uh, various Mesoamerican and other models. So be sure to... Uh, be on the outlook for that. Of course, we're on Patreon and as well as PayPal, so if you wish to support this podcast, uh, feel free to donate. I'll keep the uh, introduction a bit short because uh, today we actually have not just one, but for the first time, two special guests. Um, Craig Foster, who's a returning guest, he's appeared twice previously, and of course, the man, the legend himself, Brian Hales. Uh, gentlemen, uh, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Our, My pleasure. Our um, and of course, because you're from the States and most of my listeners will be from the States, uh, happy Independence Day, you ungrateful colonials, tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> but, um, it's a bit irreverent, but there's an excellent meme that was flowing around of like the British flag saying, um, insurrection is a crime. And then George Washington uh, basically saying in response, only if you lose. <laughs> okay, well, without humor uh, aside, uh, Craig, you were on a few, um, not too long ago, so like uh, any updates in terms of research or any presentations you're working on or anything new in uh, your life? No, not not really. Just uh, plugging along, uh, working on a few projects and um, writing some papers for upcoming conferences. So that's, that's it. That sounds fun. And Brian, because you're... De- uh, this is the first time you've uh, graciously appeared on this podcast, and thank you again. Um, of course, unless you've been living under a rock for like the last number of years, everyone has heard the name of uh, Brian Hales. But just in case they haven't, um, maybe if you were to give an introduction to yourself, like have you always been a Latter-day Saint? What do you do for a living? And what got you into the uh, fun, wacky world of Latter-day Saint studies? And any areas of interest? Well, I, uh, I grew up in the church in Logan, uh, served a mission, and uh, had a member of my uh, family uh, convert to a polygamous group, at least for a few years. But that's what got me interested in uh, Mormon fundamentalism. And uh, I, I'm an anesthesiologist, semi-retired, actually. Um, but uh, I use my downtime to research uh, fundamentalism. And uh, had a couple of books published, and then people were asking me a lot of questions about Joseph Smith's polygamy, and I hired Don Bradley to go out and round up every known document dealing with polygamy that we could find, and uh, then did three volumes on Joseph Smith and plural marriage that was published in 2013, and my books, most of them have been published by Greg Coford Books. So that's the quick version, but uh, you can, I have a couple of websites. I think you mentioned you're going to put them in the show notes, but uh, it's mormonfundamentalism.com and josephsmithspolygamy.org. And then if you're interested in the documents that uh, I've used in my research, you can find them all uploaded at mormonpolygamydocuments.org. Yes, and uh, all those links will be in the show notes, as well as a link to Brian's page for the Craig Coford Books website, where you can get uh, access to, among other volumes, his three-volume work, uh, Justice Smith's Polygamy, two volumes on history, and one volume on theology. And as a theology nerd, I really do appreciate there's an entire volume on the topic. Um, it was about time there was something like that on the market. And they're all excellent, so uh, be sure to check that out. And of course, I'll include um, some links as well relating to Craig and his uh, excellent research as well, including his uh, author page on the Interpreter website. 
Um, and although uh, you've touched upon it, uh, maybe if I were to ask, like, uh, both Sarah McCraigan and Brian, uh, what are your credentials when it comes to the issue of fundamentalism? Because today's issue, uh, episode, I should announce, is basically interacting with, between the LDS and other non-LDS groups in the broad Mormon spectrum, mainly called fundamentalists, and not with the small f, like scriptural inerrancy or unar creationism, that type of fundamentalism, but upper, upper f fundamentalism, uh, the Rulon Jaffs or the Allreds or the um, other characters and other groups as well out there. So, uh, Craig, uh, what's your publishing history and what's your credentials, if you will, when fundamentalism and Brian wants Craig answers, maybe if you were to like um, plug a few books of yours as well on that topic. Um, so I have uh, uh, published on it. Uh, I've spent a number of years researching and uh, published uh, uh, a three-volume work, The Persistence of Polygamy. Uh, both Noel Bringhurst and I co-edited the volumes with the third volume focusing on fundamentalism. And uh, I wrote a couple of essays for that volume. And then I also co-authored a book with Marianne T. Watson uh, titled American Polygamy, A History of Fundamentalist Mormon Faith. And that was based on uh, extensive research on the part of Marianne Watson and also of myself. I have interviewed uh, a number of people who are in fundamentalism. I have uh, made so many visits to Colorado City and Hilldale that I have lost count. And I have interviewed active FLDS, ex-FLDS, uh, as well as Centennial Park uh, members and some who broke off from the FLDS. I have also interviewed members of the Apostolic United Brethren, the Kingstons, the Righteous Branch, also known as the Peterson Group, as well as Independents. I think that about covers it. So I've, I've done extensive interviewing of fundamentalists and then have written based on the information that I obtained Thank you. And uh, Brian, you briefly touched upon it, but uh, maybe if you were to mention like some of the books you've published on the issue of uh, fundamentalism. Uh, my first book was published in 1991 and titled, uh, I remember the name of it, I guess it's on, it's on the, uh, I apologize, all my books are downstairs, but it's on uh, the authority issue and it'll come to me what we finally titled it, but I've got two other ones that were published. Uh, one is a, a short version of the longer one, which is Greg Colford books. It was Modern Polygamy and Mormon Fundamentalism, The Generations After the Manifesto. And my primary focus is, is different from Craig's. I, I wanted to look at their claims to authority and their doctrines as they evolved from the very beginning, from 1904 up until about 1970. And, and my expertise uh, beyond that is is not so great. So, Well, I appreciate it. Um, and the name of the book, I believe, is The Priesthood of Modern Polygamy. Um, oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's, it's fine. It's fine. Mind went blank. 
Um, and you also have a short book on the Saint Records trade series on uh, Mormon fundamentalism. Um, I was talking to Craig before you came on. It's like I have all the volumes in the series. Like overall, I wasn't a fan of the series, but your volume was one of three volumes I thought was very well done, and I thought that's a very good entree, if you will, to fundamentalism, like a good gateway drug of sorts to the um, modern polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism one. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it's accessible, like uh, which is always good for a uh, controversial topic. And some might be wondering, like, why today we're discussing fundamentalism. And joking aside, we're not going to put the fun back into fundamentalism. Uh, but there is a TV series, a Netflix series, uh, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey, that kind of uh, discusses Warren Jeffs and the FLDS church. And that got me thinking because... Often, unfortunately, you see these memes online comparing Joseph Smith and Warren Jeffs or the LDS Church and the FLDS Church, trying to give the impression, like, say, a, uh, <clears throat> to say he's a rascal and uh, is an understatement, like a evil individual like Warren Jeffs. Um, he's basically cut from the same cloth as Joseph, and there's no real substantial difference in their claims to authority or polygamy or what have you. You know, it's usually for shock value, but it's pretty common. You know, we've all seen it. And, of course, like, there will be, of course, discussions about fundamentalism in terms of their claims, their authorities, you know, and this is not really an issue like uh, many Latter-day Saints study, um, unfortunately. So I decided to ask uh, not just one, but two people I know who have like very complimentary, but like they've approached things differently um, to actually approach uh, and to discuss fundamentalism. So, you know, who better than uh, Craig Foster and Brian Hills who actually come on today. So um, that's why I picked these two um, uh, gentlemen. And I believe, uh, Craig, you will be giving a presentation first. Um, so uh, I'll let you present, and then if Brian has any comments on your presentation before he presents, I'll let him uh, go ahead with that. Um, you know, but if you want to uh, share your screen and uh, present your uh, part of the uh, presentation. Okay. Wonderful. Okay, so um, I want to discuss basically comparing the FLDS to LDS and particularly comparing Warren Jeffs to Joseph Smith. And um, as Robert uh, mentioned, because of the uh, Netflix series, Keep Sweet, uh, Pray and Obey, as well as various memes that have been going around the internet regarding the FLDS and LDS and particularly trying to compare Joseph Smith to Warren Jeffs. Uh, I, we both, uh, Brian and I, thought that this would be a great opportunity to discuss whether that's accurate or not. Some examples, uh, there's a meme that says, what's the difference between Warren Jeffs and Joseph Smith. Warren married a 14-year-old girl. Joseph married two girls several months before their 15th birthday. Another, at the age of 37, when he already had at least 25 wives, uh, told a 14-year-old girl that if she married him, she and all her family would be exalted in heaven. No, wait, pardon me, my mistake, that was Joseph Smith. I always get the two of them mixed up. Now, these memes... Uh, more often than not, we'll have photos of uh, Joseph, uh, or excuse me, excuse me, photos of Warren and 
paintings or images of Joseph. I'm not showing them because, quite frankly, I don't want to give them any more publicity than they've already had. Another meme has 34 wives, 14 age uh, of youngest, 11 already married, one mother-daughter pair, eight biological sister wives, 17 age brides, Joseph Smith and plural marriage. And another one was comparing Joseph Smith versus Warren Jeffs, 34 and 78 for number of wives, 14 and 12 age of youngest wife, 11 and 21 other men's wives, uh, mother-daughter pairs, one and seven, and uh, biological uh, sister wives, eight and 56. Each time, the first number being Joseph Smith and the second number being Warren Jeffs, and then seven under age 18 and 24 under age 18. And um, I won't even go into how inaccurate some of these memes are, uh, but we'll cover a little bit of it in the discussion in the next few minutes. But take my word for it, even, even the supposed information is inaccurate on these. <clears throat> so are Warren Jeffs and Joseph Smith uh, similar? No. And you noticed I made that no as big as possible because they definitely are not similar. And we're going to cover a couple of reasons why they are not. Differences between the FLDS and LDS, and particularly between Warren Jeffs and Joseph Smith. We're going to first mention the young brides. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because more often than not, that's what you're going to immediately see the comparisons between the young brides of Warren Jeffs and the young brides of Joseph Smith. And I'm going to explain why there is a world of difference between these brides. And I, and I know that uh, Brian is going to touch upon that too. First of all, they, they, they really love uh, giving the uh, uh, description of uh, both uh, Jeffs and Smith as pedophiles. So we're going to look at the definitions of some philias. Now, I, I know that for those who have seen my earlier presentation, sorry, you're going to get just a touch of a repeat, but not a lot, I promise. So pedophilia is defined as the primary or exclusive sexual interest in prepubescent children. Hebophilia is defined as the strong, persistent sexual interest by adults in pubescent children between the ages of 11 and 14. And ephebophilia is defined as the primary sexual interest in later adolescence, which is typically ages 15 to 19. Joseph Smith was not a pedophile, not, not within the definition, nor, as we shall see, within um, his actions. He was not a pedophile. But what about Joseph's young wives? What, what can we say? How do we reconcile Joseph Smith marrying uh, these uh, young women 
uh, ages down to uh, 14, almost age 15, with Helen Mar Kimball. Uh, and the way that we do is you have to place it within context. So factors creating the right climate for early age marriages. The factors will include economic, demographic, and cultural factors. Often it involved at least two and usually all three of these. Furthermore, time and place were very important and usually influenced or were influenced by the above three factors. And I want to really emphasize time and place. Now, I approach this as I explained earlier um, when I gave a presentation on marriage age uh, a while back, but I'm going to explain again. I am a professional genealogist. I spent over 30 years working at the Family History Library in Salt Lake City, and I am accredited uh, two times over, uh, one in Ireland and one in uh, Scotland, but have done extensive research not only in the British Isles, but in the United States and Canada when it comes to genealogy, as well as marriage, uh, courtship, customs. I um, actually have taught classes at, uh, well, really, both uh, in North America and the United States about marriage uh, uh, statistics, customs, etc. So I know what I'm talking about, basically. <clears throat> I want to focus on the frontier because, as I said, time and place. And the frontier was the right time and the right place that um, often necessitated early marriages. Reasons to marry were accelerated. Reasons not to marry were eliminated. The frontier tended to blur the meanings of age and allow for marriage of girls who might be seen as too young for marriage in other situations. And Nauvoo of the 1840s was on the edge of the Western frontier and therefore exhibited many of the characteristics of frontier society. Jumping forward to the 21st century United States, it no longer has a frontier setting that would encourage early marriages, and our society no longer allows early age marriages. Indeed, there are laws across the United States, with a few exceptions uh, of some of the states, Utah not being one of them, where there are limits to uh, how young um, a bride and groom can be to legally marry. So Warren Jeffs was out of the time and place where marriages to even younger uh, uh, women uh, was not only legally allowed, but was socially accepted. What's the difference then between Warren Jeffs and Joseph Smith? Uh, this um, brilliant person, well, whoever it was, was trying to be brilliant, um, stated that Warren married a 14-year-old girl. Joseph married two girls several months before their 15th birthday. 
Ooh, wow, what a burn. No, no, sorry. Actually, Warren married several 12-year-olds, and then he broke FLDS custom. And I'm going to explain to you what that was. I have been told in several different interviews that among the FLDS, so I'm going based on what I was told uh, interviewing people, that among the FLDS, that there was a custom, and I would assume still is for those who are marrying, even though Warren Jeffs has ordered them not to marry anymore. Uh, but um, there was a custom that while they got married, that marriage was not consummated until they both felt that they knew each other and they felt comfortable with each other. This was in part because some of these couples had not even really met or known each other until the day they got married. And I'll explain why in a, in a couple of minutes. So the custom was to get married and then have a time period that could be anywhere from uh, a week, a couple of weeks, to even several months or up to a year before they consummated the marriage. Warren Jeffs, on the other hand, with at least one of the 12-year-olds, and I am not going to give her name. Her name is available online, but out of respect to her, I am not going to give her name. But he married her, and um, it was either later that night or the very next day, he consummated the marriage. And this girl had barely turned 12. She had she was not even one month after her 12th birthday when he married her and immediately consummated the marriage. Uh, one of the people I interviewed, I won't give his name for uh, privacy reasons, but he was fairly high up. That was the that was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, and that's when he uh, parted company with Warren Jeffs. Was when he found out that this took place because it went completely against how they handled marriages and in terms of consummating the marriage, placement marriage. In uh, her article, uh, The 1948 Secret Marriage of Louis J. Barlow, Origins of FLDS Placement Marriage, Marianne Watson um, wrote uh, that um, she described the origin of the unique FLDS form of arranged marriages called placement marriage and went on to explain, although placement marriage is deeply entrenched, in the belief structure of the FLDS community, it did not always exist. Rather, it has evolved over the past 50 years or so. And placement marriage meant that only the leader of the group, originally um, uh, Leroy S. Johnson, uh, known as Uncle Roy, later Rulin Jeffs, and then Warren Jeffs, only they could decide who would marry whom. There was no freedom of choice in selecting marriage partners. They were told who they would be marrying 
And sometimes they were told the actual day of marriage. They would be told in the morning, this evening, you will be marrying so-and-so. And that's the way it uh, was. Joseph Smith and other early leaders not only allowed but encouraged freedom of choice in selecting potential spouses. The, and I want to explain here because people are going to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Helen Mark Kimball was told uh, by her father that she was going to marry uh, Joseph Smith. If she had um, really put her foot down and said, I absolutely will not marry uh, Joseph Smith, I doubt that Heber C. Kimball would have forced her to do so. But we need to keep in mind that the concept of romantic love and marriage was rather new at that time. The concept of uh, love and marriage for romance began in the later 18th century and um, uh, blossomed in the Victorian era. And I want to once again say it began in certain places and then this concept spread from there. So uh, some places it was much later uh, than, than uh, the later 18th century. And uh, what was more important were uh, economic factors, social factors, familial uh, factors, uh, all kinds of, of uh, different factors. But romance and love were really quite low on the list. I, I know in our day and age, that's hard to believe, but that really was the, uh, the way it was at that time. And marriage on the Western frontier tended to be much more utilitarian in nature of, um, yes, this, uh, this guy will be able to provide for me. Uh, he has a farm or whatever. I will marry him or this young woman uh, looks to be a good childbearing age, and we need to have uh, plenty of children uh, to, uh, to help manage the farm or whatever the situation was. So it was much more utilitarian in nature uh, on the Western frontier. Because of frontier conditions, young girls in the West matured rapidly into women's roles. They were courted at a very young age by much older men, and were sometimes married when only a few years into their teens for the reasons that I just gave. Okay, I want to move to one-man rule very quickly, and I'm taking way too much time, so I apologize. One-man rule was one of the reasons why uh, Warren Jeffs could get away with what he did, or before him, Ruland Jeffs, etc. Traditionally, the Johnson Group, which later became known as the FLDS, Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, was led by Leroy S. Johnson and what they called the Priesthood Council. And the Priesthood Council and Leroy Johnson originally had uh, basically made decisions together with Leroy being the head of the council, thus directing the council. But it was viewed as a council uh, running the organization there. 
And again, Watson writes in her article about Lewis Barlow. By the early 1970s, um, there was evidence of discord among Johnson's priesthood council members over whether the priesthood council members all held authority and should govern collectively, or whether only one man actually held the keys to priesthood. Johnson's death in 1986 left Rulin T. Jeffs as Johnson's sole remaining council member because the, the argument had been so strong, two of the council members had left and the others had died off other than Jeffs. And so uh, Jeffs claimed to be the key holder and that one man. And he taught that to oppose the one, one man himself was to oppose God. And Warren naturally enforced that doctrine uh, for them uh, or that policy. Within the context of isolation and social ostracization, one man rule emerged as a system that enabled and uh, and narrated abuse. And that is so true. Joseph Smith's approach was in sharp contrast to Rulin and Warren Jeffs. Joseph established and other church presidents after him institutionalized ecclesiastical checks and balances so that there would never be a situation like what you uh, had down in Short Creek with the FLDS. We have the first presidency that uh, acts as a quorum, the quorum of the first presidency. And these members come from the quorum of the 12 apostles. And these 15 men, traditionally, sometimes there have been other counselors, um, more than two in the first presidency. But these men act as uh, they have to be unified. Uh, They have to have the uh, spirit of confirmation of what they decide. Uh, Thus, I think this is why they are unified, because they all um, receive the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And therefore, they provide checks and balances on one person taking over and being the sole person to say anything or, or um, order anything. So Joseph Smith was not like Warren Jeffs. And um, that's, uh, that's the end of my uh, short presentation. And I'm going to stop sharing. And... Um, Hopefully, uh, hopefully that's been helpful. Oh no, that's that was a very good uh, general overview of like um, the contrasts between Joseph and Warren. <clears throat> uh, Brian, do you have any comments you want to uh, make on uh, Craig's uh, presentation uh, before you present on that, that particular topic? You're muted, <laughs> Brian. You're muted. Sorry, um, okay. quite a few of Craig's comments. I'm going to uh, expand on or even repeat in my presentation. So I, I don't know of anything specific really other than to just maybe go ahead and, and dive into it. If oh, perfect. Okay. Uh, start, start when you want to. <laughs> All right. Is it, is it up? Uh, yeah, it's up. You see my screen. Okay, great. Um, the, uh, the five areas that I want to talk about are 
There we go. Plural marriage in the new and everlasting covenant, uh, Joseph Smith and sexuality, priesthood keys and sealing authority, teenage wives, and no control over Mary's choices. You can see the overlap with what Craig had, uh, had uh, discussed. But if we look first at plural marriage in the new and everlasting covenant, we, we find that there's a lot of confusion on the relationship between these two. And it's not that surprising. If we go to section 132, uh, we notice that verse 1 is a question from Joseph Smith about a plurality of wives. And we also notice the next 19 verses don't mention polygamy again. What they do mention is God's answer. He says, I'm going to answer you by giving you a new and everlasting covenant. And then he adds this. Oh, by the way, if you don't obey it, you will be damned. And so he's kind of got, God's got our attention here. He's going to answer the question on polygamy by giving us the new and everlasting covenant. We must obey or we will be damned. And some people say that that means the new and everlasting covenant is polygamy, but we know that isn't the case simply by reading verses 19 and 20. 19 and 20 tell us about a, a monogamous marriage, a man marries a wife, and then it mentions that they have to do it by the authority of a man who has the keys of this priesthood, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But this monogamous couple who are married by proper authority and live worthily, then shall they be gods because they have all power. And the uh, the new and everlasting covenant, as I said, is not plural marriage. It's actually not even just marriage. It's all of the covenants that we enter into, and Brigham Young explained this. He said, all Latter-day Saints enter the new and everlasting covenant when they enter this church. Clearly, they're not entering into polygamy when they enter the church, and this was in 1868. So as we study what plural marriage is and is not, it's not the new and everlasting covenant. It's not even a ceremony or a covenant by itself. It's, it's not an ordinance, but plural marriage is the repetition of the sealing uh, ordinance but it's not an ordinance all by itself. It's also not a law of the priesthood, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But to summarize, plural marriage is a practice that is part of the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, and it can be permitted or commanded as God directs. Now, this question of is plural marriage a law, because uh, the polygamists today want to say that it's a priesthood law, it's not a strong argument. If we look at how the brethren uh, referred to plural marriage or polygamy, it's most often a doctrine or a principle, um, but also mentioned as a practice. And once in a while, it's called a law, but we know it isn't a law from a variety of observations. And one is that the Book of Mormon is, is only a book about monogamists. There's no authorized pl plural marriage. Um, it contains a fullness of the everlasting gospel, according to the DNC. And then Joseph taught that a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts and by any other book. So um, these are some things that help us understand exactly what plural marriage is. I really like this quote from John Taylor. And as, as you saw on the other slide, there's, there's different words used to, to describe plural marriage. But President Taylor said this. He said, God told us about our wives and our children being sealed to us that we might have a claim on them in eternity. He has revealed unto us the law 
a celestial marriage. See, eternal marriage, which is fulfilled even when a monogamous couple, okay, have a proper authority uh, performing the ceremony. Um, that's the law. And then associated with it is the principle of plural marriage, which can be practiced or not practiced. And and I only am quoting either Joseph Smith or people who were taught plural marriage by Joseph Smith in, in my presentation here. But here are three individuals who were asked if uh, Wilford Woodruff was asked if he had ever heard of a man must be exalted uh, and have more than one wife. And he answered, I, I don't know that I ever heard Joseph use that expression. Bathsheba Smith uh, was asked the same thing. She said, I never heard of that. And Joseph C. Kingsbury said this. He said, I heard it preached from the stand that a man could be exalted in eternity with one wife. Now, the second point is Joseph Smith and sexuality. And Craig did a great job kind of introducing and talking about this. But if we look at Section 132 again, we find there are four reasons uh, for plural marriage to be permitted. One is as part of the restitution of all things. The second one is as a specific trial for that time and place to multiply and replenish the earth and to allow all worthy men and women to be sealed in marriage and become candidates for exaltation. Um, now, we notice that verse uh, 63 does talk about multiply and replenish the earth. Um, sexuality, uh, sexual relations were expected. There are a number of voices that are saying, no, 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 Joseph never consummated any of his marriages. Well, so, uh, verse 63, it, it gives us that expectation that that was something that was expected. Um, but unlike uh, uh, Warren Jeffs, I will argue that it was a minor component for Joseph Smith. Um, he wasn't somebody who was driven by libido, even though that's what everybody assumes when they hear about polygamy and Joseph Smith. Um, this we have in the uh, Temple Lock case, Emily Partridge was asked that during their year-long courtship, in other words, Joseph talked to her about polygamy, but they didn't get sealed for about a year. Um, but she was asked, did Joseph Smith ever lay his hand on your shoulder or put his arm around you or offer to take your hand? Emily Partridge testified he never did, for he was not that kind of man. He was a gentleman in every way and did not indulge in liberties like that. And so we, we find that uh, I, I don't want to necessarily... Uh, imply that Warren Jeffs is something other than that, but we can say that Joseph Smith uh, was a gentleman uh, from one of his plural wives, who and, and no one left a report uh, otherwise. It's also interesting if we look at a list of Joseph's sealings. Notice here that um, these first sealings or these first proposals to be sealed are all to women who have legal husbands. The first plural marriage, uh, according to the timeline, was was not uh, was a was not a married woman. It was Louisa Beeman, and my friend Don Bradley thinks this should be over here in in 1842. But the uh, regardless, uh, most of Joseph's initial plural proposals were to engage in a non-sexual eternity only sealing to a legally married woman. The women stayed with their husbands. They were their legal husbands' wives in every sense. They were not the plural husband's wife until after death. But then we see something happening here in 1842, don't we? And this, this is when, wrong direction, um, the third angelic visit, according to Mar uh, Mary Elizabeth Rollins, was early in 
February of 1842. And that's where we see a pattern where these women whose names are in red here are proposed to, many are married, and uh, that's where we have a documentation of, of uh, sexuality here. But the angel came three times. Only the last time was with the sword. And, and I think he's saying to Joseph, look, you're trying to avoid the full plural marriage. Um, we want you to do it. And that was, that's when Joseph started to, to marry women with whom he could have a family. And this is a chart from our website. But uh, there's very good evidence that the marriages to Emily and Lucy and Melissa uh, were all uh, consummated because they testified of such under, under a def- in a deposition uh, under oath. And then there's some moderate evidences for others and weak for some more. Um, to summarize Joseph Smith and sexuality, there are no children that have been documented. There's, there's good evidence that, that one or two, maybe three, were born to Joseph Smith, but they were uh, immediately farmed out to other families. We don't know who they are. All of the DNA testing that has been done, and there's been for eight, uh, have, been, have disproven his paternity. Um, from all indications, sexuality was uncommon. Many of the time and eternity ceilings were consummated, but the, the eternity-only ones were not. That would have been adultery. Uh, and there's no evidence to, so, to show that sexuality was a primary focus of the relationships. And then I did a study a few years ago just trying to see, did people complain about Joseph, even his enemies, that he used sexually oriented slang language and that he was all about, you know, libidinous uh, drives and, and things that they could produce? And the answer is simply no. Nobody complained, even the critics, that Joseph was using this kind of language, that libido was driving this process is really not supported by by any real evidence. And then this last slide, I also did a study of what happened to Joseph's wives after his death. And there were half a dozen or so that actually left the church. But um, did any of these women later lodge complaints against Joseph? Did they say, oh, it was just all about sex? It was he just wanted to get into a few more beds. That's why he was doing this polygamy thing. The answer is no, not a single one. Even those that left the church looked back and said, this was about sex. They, they considered it a religious practice and uh, that, that they were devout religionists themselves, and that's why they went along. Now, the third topic is priesthood tease, and Craig also talked very much about this, and, and I just want to expand maybe just a little bit. Again, if we go back to, se- to section 132, the first question is about polygamy. But then polygamy is not mentioned. But what is mentioned? Well, in in verse 7, we find that there's a discussion of a power. This is a power that can seal something that will be sealed on earth, and also it will be sealed after death. And it's the authority is given to one man. And here it says there's never but one on earth at a time on whom the power and the keys of this priesthood are conferred. And, and, And Craig talked about this, but what's interesting is if we read on in, in section 132, we discover that God gives us four examples about how the authority of this one man, this who holds the sealing keys, how this authority works. The first example is in verse 13, and, and it explains that all things that aren't sealed by this power are not going to be sealed in the next life. The second example, verse 15, is that civil marriages that are not sealed by this authority are not going to be married in the next life. And then example three, which I think is the most important verse in all of section 132 for our fundamentalist friends, tells us 
Um, what happens if a sincere person who uh, uses the right language, um, but it's not through the one man who has the keys. It's not by his authority. What happens? And I'll talk about that in a minute. But the fourth example is verses 19 and 20. And we, we read through those earlier, a monogamous couple by proper authority, they live worthily, they shall be gods and receive exaltation. Now, in those same verses, verses 7 through 19, God emphasizes over and over the importance of, of the authority and of order. There's never but one in verse seven. God tells us in verse eight, mine house is a house of order. And you have to ask yourself, if if there isn't one man controlling these things, how is there going to be order? Because people will be just doing it willy-nilly, claiming personal revelation has authorized them. So there's one man who must authorize it. Verse 10, God asks a question. Will I receive at your hands what I have not appointed? And he appoints this through the one man, giving his authorization. And then back to verse 18, this ever so important verse for our fundamentalists and for anyone who wants to be a polygamist today. If a man marry a wife and make a covenant with her for time and all eternity, and it is not sealed through the Holy Spirit of promise through him whom I have anointed and appointed unto this power, then it is not valid, neither of force. And then God repeats himself, my house is a house of order. Ken, this, this, my house is a house of order is repeated twice within 10 verses here in this section, I think it's important. And then verse 19 again talks about the importance of having the one man's authority um, performing that ordinance. Joseph Brigham Young summarized it in a letter to William Smith in 1845. He said, Joseph said that the sealing power is always vested in one man and that there never was nor never would be but one man on earth at a time to hold the sealing power, the keys of the sealing power in the church that all sealings must be performed by the man holding the keys or by his dictation, and that man is the president of the church. And then he gave an example. Brigham said, this was proven, for Hiram did undertake to seal without counsel. And Joseph told him if he did not stop it, he would go to hell, and all those he sealed with him. And it's also important that Joseph Smith did not teach that church patriarchs have authority to seal plural marriages. They have authority to seal patriarchal blessings upon the heads of individuals, but not marriages. And also that receiving all temple ordinances, and I'm talking about the second anointing, can authorize a person to perform plural marriage. Joseph did not teach this, and those who had received their highest ordinances in Nauvoo did not go about sealing marriages without the one man's authority. Yeah. And then lastly, sincerity and personal revelation cannot authorize a valid plural marriage. And I, I will just add that I prayed the prayer, if you will, back in 1989 to know uh, about authority. And uh, if you will study it out in your mind, and I mean study uh, Lauren Woolley, study uh, John Y. Barlow. John Y. Barlow said he didn't have the keys. Study Joseph Musser. He said the same thing that these people who derive their authority through this line, they need to study the line and, and what these men said about the keys and then pray. And, and the answer is the keys are still in the church. Russell M. Nelson holds them. They're used every day to seal eternal marriages monogamously. I don't think he will ever give authority for polygamy again, but you know, who can say, but now going to teenage wives, I think uh, Craig covered this pretty well. There's, there's uh, these, uh, the ones with the asterisks, we are not sure of their ages, though I'm pretty confident of those. 
But the evidence supports that the seedlings to 14 and 16 year olds were not consummated. Months after their plural seedling, Joseph and the 16 year old, it was Flora Woodworth, divorced. The, the seedling was canceled because she had had an interaction with Emma and ran out the next day and married a non-member, something I don't think she would have done if the, her marriage to Joseph had already been consummated, but that's ambiguous to some degree. Brides of these ages were eyebrow raising, but not scandalous. Utah policy was to wait until the women were 17 or 18. And I think that policy began with Joseph Smith in Nauvoo, but that's something I haven't been able to prove. Getting to Helen, uh, Joseph didn't seek that marriage. Um, it was arranged by, by Heber and and Helen did give her permission. And we can say that there must have been some social pressure there. But we can also say that that uh, there doesn't appear to have been any uh, consummation of this. It was more of a betrothal. Uh, there's no record of her and, and, uh, and Joseph being together alone after the sealing ceremony. Um, and then as an adult, Helen defended Joseph and plural marriage in Utah. And she never taught that she was victimized by Joseph, even though there are hundreds of people today who want to pull the victim's card for Helen. I don't think she would be happy with those uh, portrayals. The last thing to cover is that, is that there is, as, Joseph, or as Craig said, there's no control over marriage choices in Joseph Smith. Lucy Walker remembered Joseph teaching a woman would have her choice. This was a privilege that could not be denied her. And, and this one recollection from one of Joseph's plural wives, I think, is kind of important. And uh, I think the placement doctrine or practice of the FLDS is in direct violation of Joseph's teachings on this. And then there's this fun story by, uh, about Martha McBride Knight and her daughter, Almira. And I wasn't going to put it in the slide. Let me just read it. Um, her daughter, Almira, was asked, and this is a late account, 1908, but she was asked, were you ever proposed to as a plural wife when you were in Nauvoo? And she looked startled. And Almira said, well, yes and no. One day, mother, and that's Martha McBride Knight, um, and I were in the front room and Joseph Smith came walking down the street and turned in at our gate. I had a hunch. And as he entered the front door, I went out the back and remained until he left. When I returned, my mother told me that Joseph had come to request of, of his brother, Hiram, to ask me to be his wife. So Joseph is creating a, a possible plural marriage. And he, Joseph asked my mother to ask me, seeing that I wasn't in. And she was just barely out, if you will, just in the back of the house, but outside. But uh, when, when her mother asked her, Almira, what do you say about it? She said no. And the important point here is that while Joseph was trying to, to make this work, he wasn't using his authority as the one man, the key holder, the church president, the prophet, to dictate anything to, to these individuals. And there was no backlash against Almira. She turned Hiram down and there wasn't any church court. There wasn't any behind the scenes um, action against her. Um, there, there's another account I'll just summarize where Joseph, again, is, is, is creating the op opportunity between Marianne Covington to marry Joseph's brother, William. And he says, look, to Joseph said, if you are willing to consent to it. So it's, it's, uh, it's something that they have an option. It's not a controlled uh, situation by any means. She went ahead and, and married William. Um, but there's one woman, and there were actually several situations where Joseph sought a plural wife, 
and was turned down. And one of them is kind of funny. Sarah Granger Kimball told Joseph to go teach it to someone else. Um, see, these women aren't the, the, the uh, gullible dupes that are just kowtowing to anything Joseph said. They're people like you and me. And when they didn't want to do it, they, they didn't. And, and Joseph's response was interesting. Rather than threatening her, he said, well, will you tell me who to teach it to? I will not cease to pray for you. And, and so here we have some examples of, of Joseph Smith himself involving himself with trying to create plural marriages and, and they're not working out to his liking. And yet, again, there's no control. He's not playing the I'm the prophet card. He's just moving on and, and praying for the individuals. And then um, Joseph taught this. And I think that this is important to remember. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. Um, when we undertake to exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness, Amen to the priesthood and authority of that man. You can go and read read the whole thing. You're probably aware of it. But to me, when, when someone would use the priesthood to dictate, that's just not how it worked, at least as far as Joseph was concerned. And then I like this, this quote. My last slide from Brigham Young in 1853 said, I am free and so are you. My advice to the sisters is never be sealed to any man unless you wish to be. I wish to say to you, high priests and elders, Never from this time ask a woman to be sealed to you unless she wants to be, but let the widows and the children alone. So there you have it, um, Robert and Craig. I, uh, um, I have another set of slides uh, from the El Dorado compound that I can queue up. Do you want me to, uh, to – it's kind of an extension of what I've been talking about. Oh, yeah, or? Please, please do, please. I think it would be worthwhile for Brian to show that. Yeah, most All definitely. All right, let me find it here. And thanks again for that presentation. That was very informative, and I'm sure people watching that uh, slideshow will find that very useful anyway. <clears throat> okay, I didn't hear that. Um... Um, you know, I had them all queued up here. I'll bring it up again. Okay. Um, you edit these. I hope you do. <laughs> okay. Uh, let me. I have them up if you need. Uh, oh, you got it. Okay, good. All right. Can you see it? Yeah, we Sorry about that. Yeah, I had them both fine. queued up, but somehow I must have turned off this one. But um, Craig, and Newell, Craig and Newell Bringhurst and I had a chance to go to the El Dorado compound before they finally, the, the state of Texas had sold it. And it's, this, I think, is just months before we wouldn't have been able to do this anymore because now it's in private hands. But it's in Schleicher, Schleicher County. How do you say that, Craig? Schleicher, um, I think. Schleicher but- County. Yeah. And uh, we, we, I just want to give you a kind of a quick a run through of a, of a couple of things we discovered there. Here's the opening door and then you drive a ways and come to a, a lookout tower. And here's their temple. And the temple is actually quite beautiful inside. Uh, the bottom floor is, is like our temples that have a solemn assembly room or like the Kirtland Temple with the, uh, the different 
pulpits on each end. And then we go up the stairs and there's a world room. Um, or this is the garden room. And you can see there's a, a tree here, um, probably a tree of life or something. And then you pass through the middle doors and come into a world room with murals of, of, of the world and a lion's there. And you keep progressing and you end up in this room. This is the celestial room. And the reason I've included it is that originally this altar bed was in this celestial room. You can see the, the doors there behind. And if I put the two pictures here, you see the, the, the big doors there at the back are also just behind where there's an altar and then an altar bed. And my conclusion, and we don't want to be too judgmental here, but it, it seems like um, having a bed in, in that celestial space uh, tells you what the clim climax of the temple experience, that's probably the wrong word to use, but the, uh, the, the final uh, objective of the celestial experience is, is going to end up being. And we also discovered in one of the rooms off to the side this, a fold-down bed. And uh, again, uh, conjuring up ideas of what the priority is. It is eternal marriage and things that are beyond this world, or is it something dealing with sexuality? And if you, if you look at the transcripts from the, um, the trials, the things that were going on, I'm not even going to mention them, but I can assure you what Warren was doing was was very much involved with sex. Now, here's that's Craig actually walking into, this is a compound. This whole house was supposed to be Warren Jeff's house. And there's some rooms here to fix a lot of food for a lot of people. There's hidden rooms. Um, but if you go through this, this doorway back in, back through many doorways, you see this room. And this room has lights all along the sides and a raised area here. This is too big for just a, a single regular altar, but plenty big enough for another altar bed. And that's my speculation that he, this was a place where the act of, of sexuality was, was going to be, uh, I don't know. Uh, where one it would occur. That, Go ahead. One thing we should mention is that um, the, uh, that large house of uh, Warren Jeff's, uh, that um, there were a number of apartments, whatever you want to call it, for uh, various wives. But there was one section, one area of the house that had his bedroom and uh, a bathroom and a kind of little sitting area. And then connected to the bedroom was a hallway that uh, that was that led to. Um, that room, the round room with the lighting, etc., and where a a bed would have been. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, that uh, I I'm just want to verify what Brian was saying. Yeah. And, and really, all that that's kind of my my conclusions. The uh, it is true that plural marriage was practiced by Joseph. He felt it was a, a privilege that God had given him. And so he was going to go forth like Abraham and Jacob in the, in the Bible. Um, but we, but sexuality was a part of it, but it wasn't the primary focus. And quite honestly, the people around Joseph wouldn't have put up with it either. Eliza Snow, Zina Huntington, uh, the, even Brigham and John Taylor. These were, were people who were devout Christians, devout religionists. They weren't, 
gullible dupes that are so often portrayed by the critics today. And if Joseph had been doing what Warren had been doing, they would have parted with him, I think, very early. Uh, that's my opinion. And uh, anyway, I appreciate being able to share that with you, Robert. Oh, no, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, uh, Craig, do you have any uh, any notes or any comments you'd like to add to, like, say, Brian's five pints in his presentation? No, Brian uh, did a great job there explaining uh, the different things. No. Do you have any questions or comments for both of us? Well, I think like when it comes to say fundamentalism in general, even like ignoring like say the contrasts or comparisons between Joseph and Warren or what have you, I think like until very recently, like one of the problems was like the lack of available resources, especially if you're not in Utah. I mean, like um, fundamentalists, they kind of remind me like say if you're familiar with say set of accountists between Catholicism, because there's so many issues they bring up like say issues relating to, like, say, ecclesiology, church structure, to the succession, some proof texts from the general discourses, or the doctrine and covenants. And at first, it kind of seems very good, but if you want to delve more into this, like, um, you can't really, like, uh, until very recently, when a lot of things have been digitized, and uh, fair play to the Mormon Polygamy Documents website and the other websites you have, Brian, all that, that's been helpful, and the CHL. But until very recently, even if you were living in Utah or Idaho, where uh, there's a lot of... Uh, fundamentalist influences it it was very difficult to, like check them out so like at face value it's like anti-mormon literature it seems at face value like shocking or very persuasive you know when it comes to say uh succession early 1886 revelation very good essay by brian by the way in volume three of persistence of polygamy on the um john taylor 1886 revelation about polygamy and the uh, new and everlasting covenant and uh, fundamentalist claims, by the way, just to make that plug. But uh, so, um, yeah, I think like um, when it comes to like any topic, you know, you, it's important like people take a step back and like uh, make sure to check the res uh, primary sources and check the quotes in context. The same thing when it comes to see polygamy or any other topic as well. So um, I'm sure you you guys would all agree with that. Like initially, like fundamentalist claims at might seem at face value very persuasive you know they have loads of quotes they have loads of um quarrels if you will about like uh the church not accepting adam god or the priest and restriction revelation in 78 or the polygamy manifesto in 1890 and the other one in 1904 and the one in the 1930s you know it's like um the lds church is in some type of um material apostasy if not like a full-blown apostasy so i'm sure you would agree with me like it's very important like when it comes to any claim like not just by fundamentalists like check the sources and unfortunately for better Absolutely. Worse, you, have to, you, you have to like dig deep into these issues. Now, one thing I do want to mention, and I know Brian would agree with me on this. Uh, we have focused on the FLDS because of the ridiculous comparison of Joseph Smith to Warren Jeffs. Uh, that what we have discussed here um, while Brian has uh, given a larger uh, explanation, which I, I think is really helpful. Uh, but we have focused on the FLDS. The various groups all have their differences. Uh, the, the fundamentalism is not monolithic. Uh, and um, so, for example, with placement marriage, that's an FLDS thing. That is not a uh, um, 
like the Apostolic United Brethren don't have that. The, uh, the Some of the other groups may have a way that's similar to that, but it, each group is different. And Brian has put up this uh, chart, which I love. I, I think it's it's very interesting. Needs to be updated, Brian. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm just not interested in these later iterations. I know, but right. if you give me this stuff, I can do it. But um, but the uh, because Lynn Thompson is dead now, there is a new leader for the Apostolic United Brethren or All Red Group. But um, but as you can see, there's a they. This is where the different groups have come from. But we need to keep in mind that there are going to be differences between the various groups. Some are good. Others are worse. They all have their issues. Um, but um, but there are differences. Yeah, and just on the AUB, um, I'm sure you guys have heard of Alma Allred. Um Although he's never been AUB, uh, some of his family are and have been AUB, um, and I I might actually have him on the um, on this podcast to discuss the AUB because he's done a lot of work specifically on uh, that group, which I've been told is the uh, most sane, uh, if you will, of the fundamentalist groups out there. But um, it's a bit irreverent. But he did tell me like his uncle had three sister, uh, three wives who were also sisters. One of them was Kate, and the other. Um, was Edith, so apparently he wanted to have his Kate and Edith too, but uh, joking aside, uh, I might have uh, Alma Allred on to discuss the AUB because he has done some research into their uh, historical claims and claims to authority. Um, and that's one of the, as I said, like one of the more uh, sane uh, groups out there, if you will. <laughs> yeah, Alma's great. So, yeah. Yeah, And he's in Rome now, so like uh, we're almost in the same time zone, so it won't be too difficult. <laughs> there you go. There but you go. Uh, yeah, um, now as you said, like you guys have like done a lot of excellent work when it comes to say books and articles and essays on fundamentalism. So like, and I'm sure you can agree with me, like it's a very broad topic, you know, um, you have so many top uh, issues. Like, um, so if I could, if you were to whittle it down and say like one absolutely essential resource where they're like online or in print that you would consider like a must read, whether something you published or someone else has published. Um, for instance, if it was me, maybe like say the um, Mormon Polygamy Documents website and the Mormon Fundamentalism uh, website, again, in the show notes at the URLs, because there's a lot of like primary res uh, resources, like transcriptions and scans of documents, like the Truth Magazine and stuff like that. So if someone were to come up to you and say, Brian, Craig, uh, there's so much, what is the best single resource to start off with? if I want to study fundamentalism, you know, in a fair way, in a way that represents the different fundamentalist groups, maybe fairly. And, but at the same time, like, um, does kind of go into like, say the problems of their claims, whether theological and, or to, uh, in terms of priesthood authority. And we have the uh, Mormon fundamentalism uh, website, um, on the screen at the moment, um, which is one of the resources I would suggest everyone, um, bookmark. I, I, I don't know there. that it's the best. But it's there, and it's a quick read. I don't know, Craig. I I don't. I just threw it in there. But I, I've, I've tried to get a real basic discussion on things. I, again, I don't know that it's the best, but it's free and it's really accessible. So, yeah. MormonFundamentalism.com. I, I would definitely agree with that. I think I think it's an excellent website, um, and um, and the documents one is. Uh, 
is also very good because it uh, um, um, you click on it and there it is, <laughs> various uh, articles, etc. Uh, so I, um, I I I would say both of those websites are absolutely must must go to uh, if you are going to want to read and, and really find out and try to understand about uh, plural marriage, uh, fundamentalism, I should say, that uh, that that uh, these websites are very good. Um, I would uh, say that uh, I like Brian's book that was published by Greg Coford. And I'm also going to uh, uh, mention my own book uh, that... I co-wrote with uh, Marianne Watson. Uh, and the reason why is because um, we, we, we approached it. Marianne Watson uh, is a fundamentalist. She comes from a fundamentalist background. I obviously am not a fundamentalist. I'm a member of the church. And uh, when we first sat down to write, I, I, said to her <laughs> very bluntly, I said, I don't believe the woolly story. And she said, I know, I do. And I said, I know. And uh, uh, basically, we agreed I could respect uh, her story. She would respect the church. And so we tried to make it as neutral as possible. Having said that, Brian would agree, uh, Robert would agree, any any historian who say that they are completely unbiased and um, completely neutral is not being honest to themselves. You're, you're always going to have biases, but we we really uh, worked hard to um, to make it as neutral as possible, including what was painful for her. I'm sure um, we got to the part where we were talking about the. Apostolic United Brethren, and she is a part of that. And I basically said, well, we've told about the warts of the FLDS, the Kingstons, the Petersons. Um, we're going to have to tell the warts of, uh, of the AUB, because if we don't, then this would not be an objective book. And so we, we told uh, those problems uh, there. So, um, yeah, we, we, we try to make it as neutral as possible. Yeah, and I think I told you, uh, Craig, um, as someone who has a degree in anthropology, I love the insider-outsider um, comp- uh, perspective being complemented with one another. So, uh, sorry, Brian, you were about to say something. Well, you, I like Craig and Marianne's book because it's got tons of pictures. And as somebody who tried to research that era back around 2000, I couldn't find any pictures anywhere. It's just, it's a, it's a really nice uh, recap. I was just going to add Craig's uh, book, uh, The uh, Persistence of Polygamy on Fundamentalism. That's an important volume. Volume three. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, do you gentlemen have anything else you want to say before we uh, end the episode? Well, I think we've said a lot. Yeah, you have. And it's been very accessible, but very informative. So, um, it's much appreciated. So again, I do appreciate the time. Um, 
you've put into the uh, slides and the research and also the excellent work you've done and published um, in books and articles. It, I found that very informative and I learned a great deal and I know others do greatly appreciate the great work you and you, Brian, and also Craig have done on polygamy and fundamentalism and other issues as well. And uh, hopefully we can actually have you guys on again uh, in the near future in the podcast, discuss other issues as well. Um, uh, for instance, Brian, I know you've done a lot of work in, say, Adam God and other topics, and um, that's something I've been doing a lot of work on in the last couple of months as well. So um might be fun sometimes to actually discuss that um, in the near future. You know, Adam God is something I really haven't cared about for a couple of decades i wrote a chapter on it yeah i'm not sure i'd be your best source on it although i have a, a very strong opinion about it it wouldn't be the longest interview so you probably could find somebody else but oh, i'll try to hit some ideas off you though but yeah that'd be fine i yeah. i have we've all walked through that path haven't we craig where you kind of have to figure out what what happened and all but well, um, again, I do appreciate you gentlemen's time. And again, um, hopefully you can actually have you on the podcast. Um, and I'm sure this will be like a very useful resource for those who um, may be interested in the fundamentalism and the Warren Jeffs, Joseph Smith comparisons, if you will. Um, so thank you again for your time. And I do really appreciate it. Thank you. And what's the name of the podcast? I'll look it up on Patreon. Oh, it's the uh, Scriptural Mormonism podcast. Scriptural yeah, the, Mormonism. Yeah, Isn't the URL yeah, the URL will be on the uh, show notes. So, um, for okay. those who want, and I'll also for those listening, the show notes will include links um, to various pages relating to Craig and Brian on these issues as well. So, with that, um, again, thanks for um, thanks for your time, and uh, thanks to everyone who listens to this episode. Um,